Again, we're going to be in Matthew 22 this morning and uh, was, was trying to think about for quite some time actually what I would preach on today. I didn't want to start um, the series in Mark uh, just yet as I knew there were people who would be traveling since it is a holiday. And it was actually last uh, Saturday uh, we were driving home from somewhere and I just started to think through this portion of scripture and the interaction that Jesus had uh, concerning the, the great commandment and the second commandment, which is like unto it. And I just felt um, that this is a, a great reminder for us as we enter into a new year and we think about following Christ. Our theme last year was follow, and we talked in great lengths the first part of the year through some of Matthew's gospel about the words of Christ and the commands that he gave. And, and I went back to uh, the sermons that were preached, and, and I think we skipped this one from everything I can tell. Um, but as we look at it today, I, I thought it would be a kind of a good way to end a year and begin a year all in the same day. And I do pray um, that it would be a help and a blessing to us as we think about uh, these two commands, as, as Christ summed up the law and the prophets in these two ways. And, and I do pray that as uh, we go through this, that we would look at our own hearts and we would ask ourselves um, the question of, are we truly following these things? I think like many things in the Bible, we can sometimes convince ourselves that we're doing things in the right way. But when we truly compare ourselves to the Word of God, uh, that's when our eyes begin to be opened. That's what James talks about, right? That we look into the perfect law of liberty, and he shows us the truth of who we are in comparison to what he has said. And as we do that, uh, again today, I, I pray that, uh, that, that our hearts would just be strengthened and encouraged and challenged. Um, to live out these things that Christ sets uh, forth for us in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the title again is Be Begin Again, as you can see. And I want to read the text one more time and then just ask God's blessing upon his word. It says this, starting in verse number 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. God, again we come to you this morning with hearts that are are deeply grateful, God, that we can even come to you this morning. Certainly we understand that it's not through our merit or our earned righteousness that we have this standing with you that we can come into your presence, but we understand it's through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, as we sit here today and we open your word again as we begin a new year, I, I do pray that our hearts would be stirred for these truths that we would strive through the power of your spirit to live out these things in a way that would bring glory to your name while also revealing to the world that there is one true God who reigns supremely. God, I pray that as the spirit works in our hearts this morning that, that we would not be so arrogant as to push him aside saying we don't need what he's trying to do in us, but God, that we would fully embrace the work understanding that through him comes about 
true and full sanctification in this life. And so, God, help us this morning to receive your word with meekness, that we would be changed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we know that this is for your glory, but you've also revealed to us in your word that this is for our good. And help us to believe that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For many people, there's something about a new year that brings excitement. Honestly, I enjoy parts of a new year, but there's also a part of it that saddens me as the new year comes in because it means that my favorite time of year is over. I love the time from Thanksgiving through January 1st, um, not just for the traditional festivities of, of Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, but I enjoy it because for our family at least, it means extra family time, time where we're around each other more than normal. Uh, we just got done celebrating Christmas with my parents yesterday, and we left around 5.30 or 6, and my mom was on the couch, and she just looked completely wiped out. And she said, I'm ready for bed. I said, Mom, it's only 6 o'clock, and you've got a messy house to clean up, right? She's got a lot of work to do. But those family times are fun, and for, for us, at least, it means that we're going to have to wait a while before these types of gatherings come around again. And while it saddens me that a year is over, I also, as I said, love a new year. I love that I'll write the wrong date for a while. Anybody with me? At least till the end of January. I love that it brings about a new opportunity for, for different things, a new perspective, a new start, a new beginning, and it, in some ways it provides for us an opportunity to begin again. Anybody here read your Bible through once a year? Ever, ever try that? As you try that, typically that begins when? January 1st. People kick that off one more time. We, we think of traditions, or I'm sorry, uh, New Year's resolutions that we make, and, and I have already crafted some in my mind that I have left loopholes for me to get out of them if I need to so I don't feel too bad about myself. But with a new year comes different opportunities, new opportunities, and even in the Christian life it serves as a new opportunity uh, to think about the work that God has done in us and the work that God desires to do through us. And so as we look to this passage today, we're going to talk about beginning again. In the passage before us, we see that Jesus was questioned. This questioning was being done in somewhat of a malicious way. And in the passage before this one, we see that the Sadducees also questioned him and they were trying to trip him up in a question about marriage. But what the Sadducees didn't understand is that Jesus would never be tripped up by their foolish questions, but rather he would always shut them up as his answers could not be refuted. But in verse 34 of our text today, we see again, that this is what happens. Matthew tells us that Jesus, by his answer to their question, had put the Sadducees to silence. And as the scene continues, it seems that the Pharisees pick up where the Sadducees left off and they continue to try to trip him up. And as I read through this passage several times this week, one of the thoughts that came to my mind is what a miserable group of people the Sadducees and the Pharisees were. Uh, they, they were always trying to get people caught in a lie or caught in the law. They were trying to trip people up and, and prove that he wasn't who he claimed to be. And, and this didn't stop Jesus from interacting with him. And in some ways, I think it fueled a fire to interact with him because he continually proved time and time again the foolishness of their self-righteousness. You see, the Pharisees were all about what they could do. 
Now, the law that they upheld was not wrong. It was God's law that was given in the Old Testament. But the way that they went about it was wrong. And their minds were filled with these grand ideas that through their own self-righteousness, they would attain peace and favor with God. And Jesus came to tell a completely different story, that it's only through him that we find peace and favor with God. And so as the story continues, we see as Jesus interacts with them, when the Sadducees were were quieted down, we see that in verse 35, a a lawyer uh, stands up, probably at the prodding of the others in the group, and he asks Jesus a question. This question was not an unfamiliar question, but rather this was a question that had been debated by rabbis for for years and centuries as time would pass on from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we're familiar with the question, at least most of us probably are, because we've read this passage and heard this passage preached on before. And the question is this, which is the great commandment in the law? And while this question was asked in pretense, we see that the answer that Jesus gives is very straightforward and to the point. As I said, this was a widely debated question, and Christ's answer would have gone along with some of the things that had been taught in his day. But where Christ seemed to differ was by adding on the second portion of loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, This group of religious snobs wanted to trap Jesus. And if they could get him to say what he thought was the most important, then they could use what he didn't talk about as leverage against him to try to prove that he wasn't who he claimed to be. Jesus was aware of their desire. And in his answer, he answers them in such a way that put them again to silence. But as we think about the words of Christ today, we must understand that while he silenced the critics, He also gives some very crucial information to those who would claim to be followers of Christ. You see, we don't depend on the law for our righteousness because, as I've said, all of the righteousness that we need is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who saved us. It's through his blood that we find redemption and justification. But we also do not ignore the law that God has given. For as it was purposeful in the Old Testament, it still has great value for us today. And so the information given is of great value for us because it reveals for us God's desire of how we are to live in this world. Friends, I don't know if we're aware of this or not, but holiness still matters. Walking in the way of the Lord is still something that we should strive to practice through the aid of the Spirit of God. A walk of righteousness is still what God desires for His children. As I said a moment ago, this is not how we earn God's favor, but to walk in the favor that we have been given proves that Christ has actually made a difference in our lives. And so as Jesus answers this question, we see that He gives them and us some vital information if we're actually going to follow him. The big idea this morning is this. The information that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22 should mark the life of every believer. If I'm not striving to live out these commands regularly, how can I call myself a follower of Christ? And so the things that we'll talk about today are the very things that Christ lived out on this earth. And as we begin again in this new year, as we have a fresh start or a time of renewed or refocused perspective, I pray that we would consider the words of Christ once again as he outlines the great commandment and the second commandment, which is like unto it. 
If we err in these things, then it proves that we have misunderstood the life that God has called us to. And so what is it this morning that Jesus says? My two points are simple, and you can fill them in if you haven't already. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. These two points will be clarified for us as we walk through them individually. And as we do, we're actually going to back up to the Ten Commandments and see how Jesus talks about the ten being fulfilled in the two, and ultimately they were all fulfilled in him who is our righteousness, the one that we cleave to, the one that we cling to, the one that we trust in. So this morning, the first thing we see is simply this, love God. If we were to ask the room this morning, do you love God? Certainly, we would answer very quickly, right? Of course, I love God. Of course, it's seen in the way that I live my life. I'm here on New Year's Day for crying out loud. I was even here on Christmas Day. Of course, I love God. And as this question is asked of Jesus, which is the great commandment, we see that Jesus doesn't waste any time with this group. He simply cuts straight to the point, and he says the greatest commandment that has ever been given to people who have lived on this earth is that they would love God. That they would love God not just in the words that they say, but Jesus says in verse 37 that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. If we were to go to Mark's gospel in chapter 12, we would see that Mark adds that we're to love him with all of our strength as well. But both of the gospel writers agree that this idea of loving God is not just something that we do with the words that come from our mouth. It's not even done in just the simple actions that others can see around us. But truly loving God means that every part of us is centered on him, focused on him, desiring to do his will, not so that we can earn his grace, but because we understand how great grace he has already given to us so when jesus was tested it didn't take him long because he understood the fullness of the law and the fullness of the law was really this to love god loving god is not simply something we say but loving god is evidenced in every part of our lives and it's not just part of every part of our lives but it's the sum total of every part of our lives when we're assessed by those around us if we were to ask them what we love, what would their answer be? If you were to, to come to a, a close friend and ask them, what is it that I love, what would they have to say to you? If you or I were to go to the Word of God and really evaluate ourselves and understanding this question, do I really love God, would we walk out on the other side with confidence or would we walk out slightly shamed by the lack of love that sometimes abides within us. Certainly we all love many things, and Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to love many things. He's not saying that it's wrong to love other people, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. But what Jesus is saying is that the greatest love in your life should be your Lord God. He's the one that you're supposed to have, that we are supposed to have the most devotion to. He is the one that we are supposed to, to walk with day in, day in and day out. He is the one that we are supposed to abide in, as Jesus uh, tells us so clearly in the Gospel of John. And when Jesus is asked this question, which is the great commandment, he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and Mark would add, with all your strength. And at the end of the, the section... 
Jesus tells us in verse 40 that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so while there's a push in our world today to say that we need to ignore what the Old Testament has to say, Jesus would refute that uh, very boldly. Why? Because Jesus understood the value of the Old Testament. And so we don't, uh, we don't remove the Old Testament from our lives or we don't separate ourselves from the Old Testament, but we see that in Christ, all of the Old Testament law and the prophets were fulfilled. And if we're going to love God appropriately, then in some way we need to look back to what the law said so that we can have an understanding of how we're supposed to live in our lives as well. So on the screen, we're going to have the first portion of the Ten Commandments today in Exodus chapter 20. I want to read them for you, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says this. And God spake all these words. Imagine for a moment being Moses in this moment. On top of the mountain, (laughs) in some way communing with God and having God give you the law that you would then take down to the people and then you'd have to come back and get the law a second time, right? Because you didn't follow the law the first time. But imagine being Moses in this moment, and as the chapter again starts out, and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so as Moses is given the law in Exodus chapter 20, Uh, we understand that that God gave it to him in a very simple way, and he gave it to him in a simple way so that he could then relate it to others. And as we take the words of God in Exodus 20 and we sum them up, basically what God says is this, you will have no other gods before me. You're you're, You're not to worship any graven image. You're not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And on the mountain, as God summed up all of these things for his people in ten commands, we see again that Jesus now takes the ten and he sums them up in two. And so if you want to understand what it looks like to love God, go back to Exodus 20 and read verses 1 through 11 once again. Jesus says you're to have no other gods. I'm sorry, God says you're to have no other gods before me. Well, what would be encompassed in that? Well, everything. No other gods before me. Well, what does that mean? Because that seems very broad and almost very vague. Well, it just simply means have no other gods before me. And so things like work and family and possessions and dreams and goals and hobbies and money and relaxation and self-ambition, all of these things can become gods when we disorder our lives and place them in places that they are not supposed to be. 
have no other gods before me. And as God was serious about this command then, friend, he is still very serious about this command today. And so as we begin the new year, some of you are looking like me, at me like I'm an angry guy. I'm not angry. I promise I'm not angry. But I can't help but think in my own life the times where I have had many other gods. Before the one true God. Times where I would, I would let my own desires or my own goals or my own wishes cloud me from seeing a true picture of who God is. You want to know if you're struggling with this idea of having any other God before God? When you don't get what you want in, your, in life, do you still worship the one true God that is? No other gods before me. He then goes on to say that we're not to worship any graven image. We don't struggle with this per se. You know, I'm not down in my wood shop in my basement carving little statues and, and making little things to set on a mantle that I could worship. But this idea of any graven image uh, that would represent something that takes priority in my life, I would say all of us struggle with at times. So we don't have any other gods before him and we don't worship any graven images. This would have specifically been speaking to them about the things that they would have carved and formed with their hands to in some ways be a representation of a God that they wanted an image of. And isn't that what they did when Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments? What did Moses come down and find? Golden calf. And I would ask us today, how, how many golden calves have we had in our lives as believers at one point or another? We don't have any other gods before him. We don't worship any graven image. We don't take his name in vain. Growing up, I only ever heard this as not swearing. But do you understand today there is so much more to this command than simply not using God's name in vain? It bothers me when people say words like, oh my God, or oh my Lord, because in a sense, it is taking the name of God in vain. But do you understand today that that command to not take the name of the Lord in vain attaches itself to many other things as well? Making a vow in the name of God that you don't intend to keep is taking the name of the Lord in vain. How about this one? Saying that you're trusting God in a certain situation in your life while you're still trying to do what you want in your life. It's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Using it in an inappropriate way. Saying that I'm relying on God when I'm really relying on myself to do the things that I need to do. And so we don't have any other gods before him. We don't worship any graven image. We don't take his name in vain. And then we're called to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And to be honest with you, of the ten, this is probably the most widely debated as to when and how and what this is supposed to look like in our lives. And I am fully aware that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, that in him we find peace and hope, and he has done the work that needs to be done so that we can rest in him, not just one day out of seven, but seven days uh, and 52 weeks a year, or 52 weeks out of the year, yeah. He has done everything that we need to, to find rest in him. But I would argue in some way that this idea of Sabbath rest is still an element that we need to practice in our lives. Anybody busy here? For them in the Old Testament, in this time, as it would have been understood, they would have taken the seventh day, which was 
Saturday as we know it. They would have set it aside. And what would they have done? They would have prepared everything they needed in the week uh, up until that seventh day. So what? On that seventh day, they could literally rest in the presence of God. That they could rest in the provisions of God. That they could rest in rejoicing in what God had done for them. And as I said, I understand that we do that in Christ. But there's something missing, I think, in our lives because we don't take this idea of Sabbath rest seriously. There's a book that I read a couple of weeks ago, and actually, or a couple of years ago. I'm going to read it again this year, and, and the book is, is called this, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I would recommend it because it reveals to us how often we get so busy that we don't have time to even remember God in our lives. You say, that's not me. I remember God when I eat my meals. Friends, God is to be remembered more than when we eat our meals. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this idea of resting, this idea of Sabbath rest, a simple way to remember it would be this. It's it's seen in the absence of labor and in the presence of worship. So how do you need to Sabbath in your life? I, I don't know, but I would recommend you find a way to do it. I don't think the Jews were all wrong in continuing some of these practices into the New Testament. Why? Because it allowed them to have time to to purposefully reflect on what God had done for them. And as that was needed for them, I would argue that it's still needed for us. And so I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. I'm not telling you you can't walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath day or or prepare food on the Sabbath day, but I would encourage us today, if we're truly going to love God, that we should set some time apart in a regular way, like we do on Sundays, to reflect on the goodness of God in our lives. And so we're to have no other gods before him. We're not to worship any graven image. We're not to take his name in vain, and we're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And as we think through these commands, we understand that all of these four commands continually point us back to prioritizing God in our lives above everything else, above everyone else, that our minds and emotions are centered completely on Him. As Jesus was speaking in Matthew 22, we see that He's pointing out this reality that we're not to be the center of our lives. And how often do I make that mistake? that I'm the center of my life in the way that I live, in the way that I act, in the way that I carry myself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Who's supposed to get the glory from our lives? Our God is. In every way. In everything we do, God is to receive the glory in our lives. And so loving God is more than just words that we say, but it's seen in how we order and arrange our lives. It's seen in what we give ourselves to and what we don't give ourselves to. It's seen in how we prioritize our worship, our finances, our efforts, our dreams, and our goals. It's seen in how we're going to see as I interact with other people as well. I am to love God above all else, and it's to be seen in everything that I do. Now, who would admit with me that this isn't as easy as it sounds? It's tough. And we've all failed at it. And I'm not going to stand here today and say, you have done a horrible job at this. I think at times we all do a horrible job at this. And so what do we do in cases where we haven't loved God like we should? Well, we go back to the sermon title, which simply says what? Begin again. 
start fresh. Don't don't look at your past failures and think, well, I didn't love God in the past, so I'm not going to love him rightly in the future. No, you just simply begin again. When you're training your kids how to use the bathroom appropriately, when they mess up, you don't say, well, there's no hope for them and just leave them in diapers the rest of their life, right? That would be a foolish mistake. And God doesn't do that with us either. When we mess up, what does he do? He gives new morning mercies that allow us to begin again to love him in the way that he desires and deserves to be loved. And so the first and great commandment is simply this, that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. As we think through this first command, I I pray that we would allow the Spirit to speak to us in the areas that we need to be spoken to, and that we would love Him rightly as He deserves. The second thing that we see this morning is love others. I already shared it with you, so you should have had your notes filled in, but if you weren't paying attention then... It's simply this, love others. In verse 39, Jesus says this, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor. We know that this idea of our neighbor is not reduced simply to those who live around our geographic location, but this idea of neighbor is a much broader term that captures everyone, really, that we come in contact with, the people that we interact with on a daily basis or at a random basis. They are our neighbors. And when we hear Jesus use this term neighbor, at least for me, my mind went to the story of the Good Samaritan. And as this man was found bloodied and beaten on the side of the road, the Good Samaritan helped him in a way that was costly to himself and only beneficial to the one who was in need. If you want a definition of loving your neighbor, that's it. Loving in a way that is costly to yourself and at times only beneficial to the one who is in need. And so as Jesus gives this second and great commandment, he says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to understand if you love yourself, who plans to eat food at some point today? Why? Because you love yourself. Loving yourself is not inherently wrong, right? It just simply means that you're going to take care of yourself. You, you, you give uh, what you need to yourself so that you can continue to live in this life. And so when Jesus says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself, what does that mean? If we flip that, it says that we love our neighbors in the way that we take care of ourselves. We help provide for them in the way that we would provide for ourselves. And so Jesus is, is hammering home this idea that love for God come for, comes first, but loving our neighbor is second and very close to that. And as we think through uh, the, the Ten Commandments, we're not going to read the second passage, but in Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17, we see that they're given to us, and while the first four connect to our love for God, the second six connect to our love for others. What's the fifth one? Honor thy father and mother. We should have the kids up here, right? Last night, Anderson was doing his devotions, and he came in. He, he likes to rehearse what he's read, and uh, the book he was reading was talking about love your, your father and mother, and that this is the first commandment with promise. And it was a good opportunity to explain to our kids, our child, what that means. That as God called them to love their parents in the Old Testament, God still calls kids to love their parents in this day and age as well. And loving your parents, in essence, as we take the word neighbor, as Jesus would describe it, is loving your neighbor. 
It's honoring those who you live around. And so this isn't something that is in the past. It's not something even that's just for kids. But how many of us still have parents today? And so I have to ask myself, as much as I want my kids to honor me, I have to ask myself, how am I doing honoring my parents? Am I honoring them in the way that God would want me to? That's how we love our neighbor. Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, God would continue on in the Ten Commandments and tell us that we're not supposed to murder. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? I don't think you can say you love your neighbor if you're taking their life. Uh, But what would Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? That it's not just the sin of murder, but it's hatred in the heart. And while all of us, I think, could say that we've never murdered anyone, I think if we're honest, we also all could probably say that there have been times in our lives where we have hated people and what, is, what does God say? That that's not loving your neighbor. You say, well, they don't deserve my love. Well, you didn't deserve God's love, right? Doesn't it go both ways? And so if I'm going to love God rightly, then I will love others appropriately. And when, when God tells us to not murder, and Jesus reiterates that in the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that murder starts in the heart, and it starts with hatred. So it's honoring your father and mother. It's not murdering or hating. And then he goes on and says to not commit adultery. Well, that's also, for many of us, probably a very easy one, that we haven't ever committed this sin. But what does, again, Jesus say in the New Testament? That it's not just the physical act of committing adultery, but it's looking on somebody with lust in your heart towards them. And we don't need to raise our hands. Because we probably all have had a thought towards another person that should have never entered our mind. And Jesus says, when you, when you allow those thoughts to be in your mind, you're not loving your neighbor rightly. He goes on in the Eighth Commandment and tells us that we're not to steal. We understand this would be in the form of physical possessions, but what other ways can we steal? How about credit that's not actually ours? Have we ever taken credit for something that only God could have done in our lives? That's stealing His glory. How about time from an employer? How many of us have wasted time when we could have been working? You see, these commands that that are, are given, we often look at them in such a simplistic way that we fail to actually apply them to our lives in the way that God would desire. The ninth commandment says not to lie about your neighbor, not to bear false witness. And why is this often done? Well, it's often done to make oneself look better. You're not loving your neighbor if you're lying about them, if you're gossiping about them. And then finally, he says, we're not to covet what our neighbor has. Wanting what they have, that's coveting. Or not wanting them to have what they have, that is also coveting. Looking at what other people have by way of blessings of God and wishing, not even wishing that you had it, but wishing that they didn't have it is indeed a form of coveting. And so the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, there's no doubt as to why we like to ignore them. Why? Because they hit so close to home, right? They're, They're personal. They make us think about the inward man that we often like to ignore. But God is telling us that if we're going to love him appropriately, then we have to follow the first four. And if we're going to love others appropriately, then we have to follow the second six. And and Jesus sums up the ten for us in these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You see, what Jesus is getting across to us is this. You cannot say that you love God if you don't love others. And you cannot love others rightly unless the love that flows from you is the love of God that you've experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. We often assess our love for others by the positive things that we do for them. I took them flowers, I made them a meal, I helped shovel their driveway. But isn't it interesting that in the Ten Commandments, most of what's given is in a negative context? So it's not always in what we do for others, but love for others is often seen in what we don't do towards others. That we don't talk about them, that we don't think evil of them, that we don't covet what they have. And so why is loving our neighbor such a big deal? Well, it's because love for others is the evidence of the change that God has made in us. It's proof to the world around us that we are different. Paul in Ephesians 4 uh, verses 17 through 32, and I'm going to read this passage, he, he outlines this for us very plainly. He says, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And so if you understand Paul's writings, he's getting ready to make a comparison. He says there's two groups of people. There's Gentiles and then there's those who are in Christ. There's Gentiles and there's those that have been redeemed. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand that you as a believer, you as somebody who is in Christ, is not to walk as the other Gentiles walk. Well, Paul, I wish you would tell us How the Gentiles walk. We'll continue reading. He says, They walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feelings have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then there's a transition. And he continues on and says this, but ye have not so learned Christ. He says this is how the Gentiles walk in the the error of their flesh, in the desires of their flesh, in the desires of their selfishness. But this is not what you have learned in Christ. And if you here are a believer, if you're a child of God through faith in Christ alone, then this second set of things that Paul gives is what is to characterize our lives as believers as we love others. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Paul says every lust that you had in yourself before Christ, it was deceitful, promising you something that it could never deliver to you. And as a believer, he said, you're to put on the new man. And that new man is not clothed in deceitful lust, in wickedness, in lasciviousness, in the evil of the mind. But this new man is renewed in the spirit of the mind, Paul says. So you put off the old man, and then he says, you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And this is where we get into how Paul outlines some of the Ten Commandments for us. He says, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we're members of one another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. 
but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why should I do all this? Why should I put off the old man and put on the new man? Why should I, I, I not give in to these temptations of, of sinful lust and deceitful lust and lascivious? Why should I get rid of all of these things in my life? Why should I forgive? others why should i let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking depart from me and why should i be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving others because this is what god has done for you in christ jesus so we understand that we're supposed to love god and honestly loving god sometimes is the easy part of the equation at least as we try to put on a show. But the two commandments, Jesus says, go hand in hand. That you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. The language that Paul uses here echoes the language of the law. It echoes the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And he writes with passion and zeal for these believers in Ephesus. And he desires that they would take hold of their new faith and let Christ live through them as they love their neighbors. And as this was an encouragement to them, uh, friends, I I believe, at least for me, it's still needed today. But unfortunately, so often, uh, we live a duplicitous life, don't we? We have it looking good on the outside, but on the inside still filled with so many of the things that Paul has told us to take off. We can make the appearance. Ever had to make the appearance when you're riding somewhere and the car ride was not a pleasant car ride? Maybe there's arguing going on. Maybe it's the kids that are misbehaving in the back. And then you get to where you're going and what comes on your face? Oh, it's good to see you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I love my family, right? Such a blessing. And inside, what do you know about yourself in that moment? That you're living a lie. None of us would say we're living a lie, right? We're not living a lie. There's just times where what we believe doesn't actually match up with our lives. That's living a lie, right? When we put on a show to impress others instead of being real with the struggles that we have, it's living a lie. And Paul says it's time to stop living a lie. And he doesn't mean to live in in the sinfulness because that's what's inside of you. He says, no, it's time to push those things aside and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and truly love others as you love yourself. Robert Murray McShane says this, it's the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere except at home. And I would say that fits well with all of us at times. That the people that that see us at our worst are also the very people that, that see us when we're trying to put on the show so that others perceive the best. But that's not what we're called to. 
We're to love God in such a way that His love then impacts us so deeply that we love others as we love ourselves. I was reading last night um, a new book I got. I'm excited about it. And one of the things that it was talking about is that in order to have a Romans 9 love, where Paul says, I would that myself be accursed so that my, my brothers could, could know who Jesus Christ is, we have to have a good grasp on what Paul understood in Romans 5 through 8. Because when I fully understand God's love for me, that there's no condemnation, that there's no separation, that justification is only through faith in Christ's name alone, when I truly understand God's love for me, what's that going to do? It's going to translate into my love for other people. And when I truly acquaint myself with God's love, I'm going to love him in a right way. And then in turn, I'm going to love others as God has called me to love. As Jesus wraps up this conversation in verse number 40, he says these words on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? He says if you're not doing these two things, then you'll never have any chance of doing the rest of the other things. That all of the other things are fulfilled in these two things, loving God and loving others. Jesus is not saying in this passage that we look to the law for our salvation, for we don't know that the law was never able to save, but only given to reveal the sin that was within mankind. It was given as a roadmap or a, a, a boundary line for those who were following God to not cross. But what Jesus is saying is this, for those who claim to love God, the law serves as a way for that claim to be accompanied by verifiable proof. If you say you love God, then your life should look like this. And if you say you love God, then your love for others should look like this. We're called to love God above all and love our neighbors as ourselves. And in doing so, we'll see that God will lead us on the path that he wants us to be on. Have you ever been driving down the road and you saw a set of guardrails and you thought to yourself, Hmm, there's no need for guardrails there. Most of us don't think that way, right? We think, oh, if there's guardrails there, they're there for a reason. Have you ever been driving down the road and thought to yourself, man, somebody should have put guardrails here, right? <laughs> Why? Because you understand the error that is there. The commands of God are to serve as guardrails for us. They keep us in the place that God wants us to be. Have you ever driven a car with lane departure and you get going too far one way or the other? And it kind of jerks the steering wheel back. And then if you go too far, it jerks the steering wheel back another way. That's what the Spirit of God is to be inside of us. That when we start getting outside of the bounds of God's will, that the Spirit of God begins to prompt our hearts to center ourselves back in the perfect law of God. Not so that we can earn His love, but so that we can live in His love. And I don't know about you, I want to live in the love of God. I want to live the life that he has allowed me to live through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we think about beginning again, there's no doubt in my mind that each of us in this room have a place where that needs to take place. I'm not the spirit. I don't need to be the spirit. You know. You know where you've gone off the rails. 
you know where the Spirit is nudging you back to where He wants you to be. Can I encourage you today to listen to Him? You say, well, I don't, I don't like how it feels. Well, Paul says chastening is not pleasant for anybody in the moment, but it always yields a, a fruit of rejoicing. Why? Because we get back to the place where God wants us to be. And so as the Spirit nudges, as the Spirit prompts us, I pray that we would just get back to where we know we need to be and that we would begin again. I shouldn't tell you this, but I, uh, I started going to the gym again this week. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I started. And you know what I noticed at the gym? I think a lot of people go to the gym because it's a place they can use their cell phones uninterruptedly. And they, they sit on that equipment and they leave an hour later and went to the gym, went to the gym. What'd you do? I did a lot of scrolling, right? Watched a lot of Facebook reels, but they were uninterrupted. But if you go to the gym and you don't actually work out, do you realize all you're doing is wasting money and wasting time? As we've said before, if we come to church and all we do is sit and listen and sing, but we don't ever actually let the Spirit work in our hearts, all we've done is wasted time. Friends, the Bible tells us to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. We have work to do. And that work is best done when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we love our neighbor as ourselves. So I would challenge us today to begin again. January 1st, 2023. A couple years ago, we never thought we were going to make it here, right? We thought time was going to stand still in 2020. We made it. And guess what? Next year, we'll see 2024 and so on and so forth until God takes us home. So what should we do in the time that he gives us? Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Because in these two commands, all the law and all the prophets find their fulfillment.